I, I have a massage therapist I've been seeing lately who, who does really deep tissue work. And sometimes the next day I feel like I got run over by a stampede of pygmies. Why pygmies? <laughs> That's a very vivid illustration. <laughs> well, because Most if... people would say truck. Most people would say truck at the end of assonance. Or well, reindeer. <laughs> reindeer. I've, you know, I've never been run over by a herd of reindeer. This podcast is sponsored by New Relic. To track and optimize your application performance, go to rubyrogues.com slash newrelic. This episode is sponsored by JetBrains, makers of RubyMine. If you like having an IDE that provides great inline debugging tools, built-in version control, and intelligent code insight and refactorings, check out RubyMine by going to jetbrains.com slash ruby. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Hey everybody and welcome to episode 72 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel we have Josh Susser. Hey, good morning everyone. I'm back to normal, whatever that means. We have David Brady. Hey, it's David Brady and I'm 90 degrees out of phase with everything. Avdi Grimm. Hello, hello. I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv and this week we have a special guest and that's Amy Hoy. Hi everybody. Amy, do you want to introduce yourself real quick? Oh, no, you didn't tell me I had to do this. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, hi, I'm Amy. Uh, I got involved in Ruby on Rails in, ooh, I think 2004 or 2005. It was definitely the winter when Rails was at 0.7 and uh, became a little bit famous because I wrote these sort of right-brain tutorials about Rails and Ruby, and that totally changed my life, and now I'm a product superstar. There you go. That's why we have you on the show. The, the, so that's actually uh, the perfect lead-in to the story I mentioned in the pre-call. So, Amy, you and I have never met before this call, but name-dropping your name actually helped me get a job. <laughs> I have to hear this. <laughs> okay, so it's, it's, it's a pretty short story. Um, it, it starts with a very sad joke, which is that uh, I was in the – well, the, actually, the whole point of it is, it is the joke. In an interview, talking about how much do you know Rails? This is it 2005 or so? Somebody asked me how much I knew Ruby on Rails, and I said, well, a little bit. Um, I know enough about Rails to know that if you know one, one woman in the Rails community, you know Amy Hoy. <laughs> and uh, I got the job, so thank you. Uh, you're, you're welcome. <laughs> <laughs> and, and as we've talked about on recent episodes, uh, I'm, I'm glad that the, the, the percentage of uh, women-to-men ratio is changing in, in the Rails and Ruby community. This is awesome. As as seen very uh, very clearly in the recent uh, Golden Gate Ruby conference, mm-hmm. which had um, a very nice, uh, still not nearly equal, but a very nice uh, ratio. Twenty five percent is halfway to fifty percent. Woohoo! Right on. Right. Now that's speaker. That's speakers, right? Yeah, yeah, that was yeah. speakers. Yeah, yeah, we, yeah. The, the the attendees still working on that. A- anyway, hi, Amy. It's been a while. <laughs> so, so uh, okay. So, so we ha- we do a, we do a bit or two of rogues business before we dive into the topics. So, uh, it's uh, time for best of parlay, right? This, do we need we need like a, I need a soundbite for that. Yeah, yeah, yeah Chuck. We, we need like a little um, a little jingle or something. I'll see what uh, I can come up with. Okay, okay good. So it's <laughs> talk like a pirate day, guys, and you're talking Arr! about parlay. Yeah, I feel like there's some sort of piratey theme going on right now. There should be. I, I was really trying. 
Chuck, if you're not going to do the joke from the pre-call, I will. I just want to point out that we've got Ahoy on the show. Oh, no. (laughs) (laughs) You know, yeah. Yeah, my parents Uh, didn't think that one through. Yeah. Well, shiver me timbers. It's uh, <laughs> okay. So, so we we, we have uh, we have this email list called uh, Ruby Parlay, and you, if you go to rubyrogues.com and look on the sidebar, you can see a way to sign up for that. It's uh, you know we don't charge for the podcast, but we are giving y'all a way to um, support the podcast by paying a ten dollar annual subscription, and you can get on an email list and chat with the rogues and other listeners about cool things. A lot of it is about Ruby, uh, but we also talk about other random things, and uh, my favorite thread this week was talking about fantasy literature, and our own uh, Chuck asked about, hey, what are some good fantasy series to read? And it, you can tell from my response that I care deeply about fantasy literature, and I've been learning Josh a lot. Josh wrote an entire novel about <laughs> fantasy literature. Well, you know, it was late, and I was trying to avoid uh, working on my conference. So, <laughs> uh, and, and anyway, I thought I've, uh, I, I now have a few new uh, book series to pick up and start reading. So, um, it's, we're talking it's, serious fantasy or like comedy fantasy. Both. Now, arguably, arguably, replying to rogues is work. So, I think it's funny that your work avoidance is work. <laughs> okay. I, I, Okay, now, now I'm going to have to go see a therapist. <laughs> oh, now. Now. <laughs> okay, so, uh, okay, en- enough about rogues, enough about me. Let's talk about Amy and entrepreneurship. I agree. We should talk more about me. <laughs> that was like so, lesson one of entrepreneurship, wasn't it? No. <laughs> yeah. It's marketing, no, I've right? Always, I've always so, been this way. <laughs> So, so should, uh, let me give. Uh, I'll give a little backstory on on how we ended up with with Amy on here right now, and that's uh, Paul Graham posted um, uh, one of his uh, infamous screeds talk, uh, called what, "Black Swan Farming," where he uh, basically disclosed that the business of Y Combinator does not consider the startups that they work with to be their product, but are their raw materials for making money. Um, and and then um, uh, Dave McClure came back with his own response, uh, talking about uh, okay, it's not so much about black swans; it's more about oh, what was his analogy? It was uh, Ichiro and Chi and ugly ducklings. A bunch so, of people that I've never heard of. Yes, yes, lots so. of sports sports stuff. At right. first, I thought Ichiro was the uh, that novel by William Gibson, but then I realized that was Itaro. So. Mm. Not the same. I couldn't understand most of Dave's posts because I don't follow sports at all. <laughs> same here. I was completely yeah. baffled. Yeah, it, 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 Ichiro or Ichiro, he plays for the Yankees. Or okay. used to. My dad's a huge People Yankees don't like fan. The Yankees, so. right? Oh, I, I didn't have time to read the whole article in depth, so I thought it was about that um, that sushi movie. Anyway, you oh. were saying. Okay, makes so, a lot more sense. Yeah. So the, anyway, uh, had um, we we decided we'd bring Amy on the show and. Have her set us straight about entrepreneurship. Awesome. So uh, I think it's really telling that you said that Paul wrote one of his screeds and that it was a disclosure that they don't look at the, the startups they have as their product, but rather their raw materials. <laughs> I think it's like a, if, as if Paul Graham wrote an essay disclosing that his name was Paul Graham. <laughs> <Anybody>? <laughs> 
he, he treated the subject matter like this was some kind of surprise, whereas anyone who has ever even contemplated criticizing the venture capital model, that is their criticism. So, but he wasn't being all diplomatic and going, yes, this is a criticism, but... Nope, he's just like, you know, we're betting on a few big wins, and we don't really care about the rest, but in his, you know, more roundabout kind of way. Yeah, um, yeah, I round, think it's valuable. Round, yeah, yeah, I mean, you know, he basically said that, you know, you know mo- almost every one of our startups is just the cost of doing business so that we can find one that will give us a, re- a decent return. Exactly. Yes. And I just, I did not look in to see what the reaction was, but if I was somebody who was considering going with Y Combinator, and I didn't wasn't so full of myself that I would assume that I was obviously going to be the one with the big payoff, which I think most people do. They assume, oh, my idea is going to be the black swan. I think that would be a real turnoff, and I think it's a bit of um, honesty, which you wouldn't have expected. Meanwhile, still Paul Graham, and therefore really hard to read. But uh, I thought it was very interesting. And the black swan metaphor I find entertaining. I mean, everybody read the book, The Bla- uh, Black Swan by Nassim Tlaib? I'm, I'm like the one person no. who hasn't. I've uh, I've read like, like an essay about. It. He's the same guy that wrote the camel has two humps. Uh, possibly. Okay. But only some camels have two humps. <laughs> uh, he, was, he was actually talking about a type of graph in which there are uh, not not a single bell curve, but there are actually two dominant subcultures. So what's the deal with the swans? So the yeah, idea. What's up with that? So a black swan is a metaphor for a really rare event that you don't foresee and can't foresee until it happens. For example, a combination tidal wave, earthquake, nuclear meltdown, right? Like, it's not something you really contemplate, all these things happening at once. Or, um, like, somebody being born such a genius, like Mozart, being able to compose concertos at the age of three or whatever. Uh, Things you can't foresee. Things you have no frame of reference for until they happen. The thing about black swans is it's, it's an entire species. It's like, there's lots of them. It's like a breed of swan. If you go to, for example, Rotorua in New Zealand, all you see are black swans, and they're everywhere. They're like rats. So I, was, I found that a bit strange. Yeah, yeah. But, but down there they have the white swan fallacy. <laughs> Thank you. Thanks, that, that, that nicely done. <laughs> uh, but I think that black swan is, is very apt in the sense of startups and business because if you just pick up a damn book, you'll see that there are black swans all over the place. If you're ignorant and you're just reading blogs and going... Da, 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 da. Hey, Dropbox, they made a lot of money. You know, you would be surprised if you were totally, you know, ignorant. And I think that's a great metaphor, but that's not the metaphor they were going for. Yeah, right. that makes sense. I, I read Nassim, I read an essay based off of his book in reference to the 9-11 attacks and Hurricane Katrina. And it was the same kind of thing. If you looked at the, sur- if you surveyed the landscape, <coughs> yes, sooner or later we're going to get a cap, you know, a, a force five hurricane over the top of this levee, or sooner or later we're going to get a terrorist strike on U.S. soil. But it's not until retrospect that you can go, oh, we should have been preparing for that all along because you don't know which swan is going to turn out to be the black one. That is the opposite context of startups. With startups, it's more like pick this thing and back it and back it right, and it's much less of a long shot gamble. Well, and you know, there, there's a lot of people who are trying to to make it be more that way systematically. I think uh, Eric Reese and the the lean startup stuff is uh, you know definitely more appealing model to me than the big crapshoot in the sky model. <laughs> I'm going to steal that. I love that the big crapshoot in the sky. BCITS. Well, <laughs> yeah, feel, feel, feel free to use that. <laughs> 
I already stole it. I don't know what you're talking about. Give me permission. <laughs> Josh, did you credit Amy for your idea there? I'm sorry, Amy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, um, man. What I don't... So, I don't know. I, I think that there's most things you can give them an infinite amount of backing and it won't make a damn difference and that some things will survive with, lot, with no backing. Like Dropbox, they, they create such a compelling product that they would have succeeded without the connections, allegedly, that venture capitalists, White Combinator, bring. They needed money, yes, because it's an infrastructure product, but it's just so... Anybody could have funded it, and it would have done great. There was nothing special about it. It was just that they didn't have the capital. If they had self-funded, had the money, it would have been perfect for them. Hold on right. a second. Whatever you're doing, stop. I'm recording. Awesome. <laughs> stop putting the cat in the dryer. <laughs> it's actually just a filing cabinet. <laughs> um, in the dryer? You, you put the cat in the filing cabinet? <laughs> no, my husband's about to go in the filing cabinet as soon as we're done recording. <laughs> So I also kind of don't agree. What is it about startups that make everyone get all philosophical and ooey-gooey and like great crapshoot in the sky? What is it about that? Why are people like, well, you know, the only way to figure it out is to throw a bunch of things to the wall and see what sticks. Well, I don't understand that. See, I, I see it kind of like the lottery, right? Yeah. Where, um, you know, there's such a vast amount of money that they're giving away that people don't actually think. They don't do the math. And so they're, they're not paying attention to the, you know, the everything else. They just see this big money out there. And so it's like, okay, well, how do we get to the promised land? And the, the answer is obviously to pick a, a goofy name like Fleazy or... Or or something, yeah. I, I, I apologize if there's an actual startup with the name Fleazy. I was trying to pick something that couldn't well, possibly. Why would be. you apologize to them? Oh yeah, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> Fleazy, what the heck is wrong with you? <laughs> no, Fle- Fleazy dot com is available. There's been a, a a thing I've a pattern I'm seeing um, like on Twitter and Facebook and, and that sort of thing for about the past year and a half now. Where the question is just, why call it a startup? Why not just call it a business? Mm. Oh, yeah, it's because we don't run it like a business at all. Yes, it's the hunt for a business model, which I find hilarious. It's like, we're not talking about looking for something that is obscure or rare. You know, the gas station around the corner from you has a business model. Why don't you borrow that one? Right. It works. They make more money than you do. That's boring, though. Aww. <laughs> I don't get to implement my vision. <laughs> I, so, so this segs nicely into your, uh, the, your, your blog post about Master Craftsman, which I loved uh, because you. you totally just described me. I'm, I'm like, man, I would so be the bad, the bad apprentice on that show <laughs> uh, because, yeah, it, it's like I've, I, I've, fo- I've focused my career for the past 10 years on contracting and working at startups and the, the failure rate has been just preposterously high it, it, to the point that I actually had to sit down and ask myself, am I a, am I a contributing factor? Um, <laughs> and, and I've decided that no, but one of the things that they, like a, almost all these startups that I've worked at had in common was that their business model was, okay, we're going to get some investors' money and we're going to spend it and Magic dot, happens. dot, dot. Yeah, Magic and then, happens, it, and then a business profit. model appears. 
Yeah. What I like to say about that quote unquote business model, um, people look at funding as some kind of success, but funding to a business is like a trust fund. And nobody likes kids with trust funds, and nobody should like businesses which run off funding. There are rare cases cases where you really need it. Like a Dropbox needs a lot of capital. Average, you know, Joe Average's social network for dogs or whatever doesn't require money. And if it does, they're fooling themselves. I think a lot of people just want to say, hey, I raised X hundred thousand or millions of dollars. Hooray, I succeeded. But it's a total false success. It's like getting a gold star. It doesn't actually give you anything. It's a pat on the back. Well, well, as someone who once bought a house and got a mortgage to pay for it, the, the two events are sort of uh, inextricably coupled. And while I was not very excited about taking on the mortgage and all that implied, it was really cool having a house. Absolutely. I agree with you completely. We just bought a house, too. And a friend of mine was telling thing, thank you, was saying, hey, I'll buy your next one in cash. And I said... No, why would I? I can get a better than three percent annual return on my money if I keep it. She thought it would be just about the sheer ownership, but right. that doesn't make financial sense. Even if you do have the cash to pay for a house in cash, um, but some so, people so I, with trust funds grow up to be good adults who have careers and do things, but that's not a typical reaction. <laughs> there, there you go, slamming the one percent. <laughs> no, there's such under. You know, so besieged. I should feel bad. And yet. <laughs> so I'm not anti-venture capital, actually. People, people think that I am, and I could see why. But what I am anti is blind taking of capital. I think with a mortgage, is the terms are extremely clear. Uh, they can't do anything to you unless you stop paying. Uh, with the, the, there's not an equal balance of power, but it's extremely clear what the roles are. There's no day-to-day involvement in the mortgage company. They're not coming over and saying, you know, the way that you decorated this living room is really devaluing our share of your house. You need to change it. And we're going to hire a new husband for you because your current husband isn't doing his job. You know, And we, and we need some more gray hair on the management team. Exactly. Seriously. Seriously. Now, fine. could we talk about your neighbors? <laughs> exactly. Um, <laughs> Funding is a completely different ballpark because it gets entangled unless you do, you know, start up convertible notes or share a very small portion of your company. Uh, you can lose control of it very quickly. And I think a lot of people think that funding is the thing they should do and that's naturally what they should do and they feel good when they do it. But they're not keeping in perspective, we got this money for nothing, right? For not for being good at our jobs or for making money or for actually helping people. We got it because it's a bet. We are just a lottery ticket someone's, uh, or horse someone's betting on. Shouldn't think that the money has anything to do with our value. We need to go then make the money work for us. But people, they lose track that they're the meat going into the grinder. Meanwhile, if you are aware of that, then you can, you can work with that. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. It's, and there's also the, we're the horse that someone else is betting on. A lot of startups that I've worked at, there's that, you know, if, if the only thing we care about is whether or not this horse wins this race, let's pump it up with an ex- full of an explosive amount of stimulants. It's going to win the race probably, and then it's going to die. But that's okay because we flipped the company and walked away by then. Right. So can to, we to badly mix a metaphor? So so can we uh, change tactics just a little bit? Because I, I like to get into we're, we're talking a lot about why certain aspects of this don't work, and what I'm really interested in is. 
um, you know, okay, so when, when is it appropriate and how do you make it work? Does that make sense? Sure. So, uh, so when, when is it appropriate to take funding? When you don't need it. Mm. I think that uh, if you look at a company like 37 Signals or GitHub or, I mean, if somebody came and offered me a sweetheart deal, I would definitely take some money right now. But these companies, they're taking funding because they want some extra capital to expand. They want access to really good advisors, and that comes via an economic exchange. But a company like GitHub, for example, doesn't require that money. Uh-huh. They're using it to, sec- to secure their position. They're not using it to build from scratch. And I suspect they got very favorable terms considering they don't need the money, but the investor wants them more than they need the investor. So you don't want to be the person who has the least leverage in any economic situation. Right. Like with a house, you can sell the house. You know, you can't just get rid of your venture capitalist in most situations. I, I heard a great story about angel investors, which is why are they called investor, angel investors? And the answer is because they got to pick the name. <laughs> <laughs> oh. <a> slow burn. <laughs> So, um, can you talk about like uh, how how do you before you get to that point where you don't need need it? How do you validate you know, you know in a world outside of of investors telling you t- telling you that that you're valuable by by investing money in you? How do you actually validate your idea, your business? You don't. That's a trick question. <laughs> I don't believe in this validation nonsense. What I teach my students, and granted, okay, my rules don't apply to every single business. But what I teach my students is don't have an idea and validate it. That's starting from the inside out. You're starting with what you think and you feel and shopping around to see if anyone will pay for it. Um, What you ought to do is go see what people need and then fill that need. Go go find what people struggle with, what hurts them, what irritates them, and eliminate it or make it better. And then you know that you have a market and you don't have to worry about validating you start with the customer because without mm. the customer, without a customer, you don't have a business. You may have a thing, but it's not a business until you transact. Mm-hmm. Silence. <laughs> uh, Absorption. Stunned. Stunned. No, silence. <laughs> yes. Wow. Well, I'd be interested in sort of expanding on the, the, the customer finding process because I think that's something that – I, I think you're absolutely right that, that that's sort of backwards from what a lot of people are doing. It really is. And I'll admit that the very first version of my class I taught, that was I did it in more than normal sequence. And then I saw how people got um, really stuck at the figuring out who to sell to part. I thought, oh, of course, duh. If everyone gets stuck at this point, that means it needs to come first. That means that all the other things you worked through up to this point were possibly wrong. So... In terms of finding customers, um, that is actually a huge part of my class. It's hard. It's, it's a long process. And I think people are sometimes turned off by how lengthy the process can be to find a customer and learn about them enough that you can serve them. But what you should really do is look at what groups you belong to. Are you a writer? Are you a Ruby developer? Are you a Rails developer? Are you a freelancer? Are you a graphic designer or a web designer, interaction designer, user experience specialist, whatever? Information architect, where do you belong? Where do these people hang out? And then lurk and study the crap out of them. It actually reminds me a little bit of, of Chad Fowler's book, The, the Passionate the passionate Programmer, passionate I want to say. 
and uh, I think towards the beginning, he says he's talking about career development, and he, and he recommends going and finding somebody who's in a successful business that isn't software, uh, and just like taking them to lunch and asking them like all about you know what is your you know what all about their business and like what what sort of challenges they have and what their business needs are and you know and, and just like studying studying somebody who's already who's already making money but but you know may have needs that haven't been satisfied yet i don't know if that's exactly related but remind me of that it's similar i think a lot of people focus on the idea of customer interviews which is a lean startup customer development thing mm-hmm. but I think, again, that's putting the cart before the horse. Because if you talk to a person, what most of the problems where people have really successful products solving those problems, for example, Dropbox, they're not problems that people would have come thought of to lunch. Or um, a lot of the most powerful problems that really make people motivated to buy, if you can present them properly, they aren't ones that come to mind. People are really bad at spotting their own issues. They think that there's something else. Well, they don't even think they're issues at all because they're just so used to doing this every day and suffering with it every day that it doesn't even come to mind. Right. It's like so the, I, old, the old trope of, of uh, people want a faster horse. They don't realize they want an automobile. Or exactly. However that goes. Which is great because Henry Ford's autobiography is one of my picks. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Nice, yeah. So what I tell people to do is to study what people say and do in their natural environment and not to ask them, but to see what they actually do. And this is important just in business in general. For example, you talk to somebody, what would you pay? Or would you pay this? They'll say yes, and they'll say say no, but you can't trust their word at all. I was going to say, I've seen so many businesses where they went out of their way to find that customer and then said, would you pay for this? They said yes, they build it, and then they don't pay for it. They don't sign up. It's just human nature. You want to right. be positive to the person you're talking to. They're giving you attention. You want to be, you know, uplifting. Isn't yeah. the follow-up question to, would you pay for this? Would you pay for this right now? I, I want to say I've read somebody write that, and, and whoever it was, they got away with it once. <laughs> they got enough money to, to, to uh, shoestring their startup because they said, would you pay for it? Yes, I would. Would you pay this much right now? And they said, yes. And they said, okay, go get the checkbook. Well, yeah, because there's an infinite number of, of, of nice-to-haves. Yeah. Right. I've never tried that, so I don't know. I don't know anyone who's tried that exact technique, so I've, I have no way of really weighing in on it. Well, in, but, a sense, in a sense you have, though, haven't you? Because um, I was just reading, uh, you were talking about uh, Brandon Dunn's book that, that he um, <clears throat> started, you know, started selling basically before he'd written it, um, which I also recently did the same thing. So that's kind of similar, right? Well, well I, and- yeah, yeah, sorry for the interruption, but, but Eric Reese did exactly the same thing for his Lean Startup book, and not only did he start selling it before it was there, but he started selling it before he was done writing it, and his entire sales website was a bunch of A-B experiments to help direct the construction of the book. So it was so meta, it almost made my head explode. <laughs> hey. I did not know that about the AB experiments before Lean Startup shipped as a book. That's actually really interesting. I want to learn more about that later. Um, so, okay, pre-sales, kind of like that. Fair enough. But what didn't happen was Brennan didn't go out to lunch with somebody, say, what are your problems? And they say, my freelance rates are too low. And he said, well, would you pay right now to learn how to change that? Okay. He actually gotcha. came up with a complete offer 
He told mm-hmm. people what their problems were. He ref- showed that he understood. He show- showed how he could help them, and um, he gave credibility reasons, like why he should be trustworthy. And then he said, you can buy it today for this price. That's very different than saying, what would you pay and would you pay it today? So yeah, the would you pay it today comes from, you have to remember that the product doesn't exist yet. That The, the guy yeah. who got away with it, the, he was selling Blue Sky. Yeah. Well, I mean, technically speaking, so was Brennan, right? The book didn't exist yet. Right. Now, did but, Brennan go, did he go lurk and do his, his, you know, his research so that he knew there was a market there? Yes, he did. So he got a lot of the customer research in this particular case from his customers for PlanScope, which is his software web app for uh, helping freelancers and consultants manage scope with their clients, which is sort of project management, scope management, time tracking tool, which is doing really well for him so far. But software is a a service, subscription rates, they mean they grow slowly, right? Even if he's growing 10% a month, it's going to take quite a while to get like over $100,000 a year. So... Um, one of the things he does marketing-wise for that is he has conversations with customers. He writes about how, how he charges, and he had a lo- saw people having a lot of interest in that, a lot of positive feedback, what he was writing regarding his rates and charging more. And he realized that this was another problem that they had that he could solve. Yeah. He sort of did, he did like, it's the research method, I call it safari, because you're like, out in the savannah, looking around. You don't always spot animals. You have to go out for a long time to get those great nature shots. And he was doing safari on his own customers that he already had, which is brilliant. Yeah, he he also approached me about uh, uh, looking into his product and maybe mentioning it on my freelancer show and, and things like that. And so I know that he's he's continually reaching out to the same type of person anyway and trying to... Uh, you know, trying to find other other ways of, of getting more feedback and more input. Absolutely. He is a real hustler. Okay. So, uh, so, so Amy, the, um, there's, there's the customer part of things. There's the building the product part of things. Uh, there's the, you know, being able to have money to support yourselves and, and building your product. Um, the, then there's the, um, like, what the hell am I doing part of it. And, you know, get... <laughs> <laughs> right. It's, so I think you know, you've said part of what you get when you take uh, investment money is that you are now in a relationship with your investors and they literally have an interest in seeing you succeed. So they're going to help you succeed to the best of their ability, modulated by you know how much they care about you. But, the, <laughs> but that sort of support can actually be very helpful sometimes. And if you're, so if you're trying to do the bootstrapping path and you don't have these uh, like automatic advisors that come with investment money, what is a good approach for getting that sort of support and advice and community? So if you can get a venture capitalist who cares about you, who invests, really invests their time more in you than percentage wise you quote unquote deserve based on like how much of your, their portfolio you represent mm-hmm. and they actually have good advice awesome. Most of what I've heard from people I know who've taken investment has been that their VC ignored them or that they gave bad advice or that they meddled and interfered. And, you know, obviously this is coming from the person being meddled with. So maybe they didn't know what they're doing. Maybe the venture capitalist was right, but it wasn't done in a smooth way. So I think that that is having a great rapport with your VC and having actually helpful advice is pretty unusual. If you can get it, that's awesome. 
But if you don't have, if you don't want to play the, I mean, the venture capitalist doesn't usually care if you succeed. He just, he or she just wants somebody to succeed. So the, the interest is kind of diffuse. If you can find someone great, fantastic. If you want, don't want to take that risk that you're going to get someone disinterested or worst interfering, then you want to bootstrap. There are a lot of options. For example, there are lean startup groups. There are lots of business books you could read, which are about real business and which will provide you with business guidance. Like a lot of people, they don't act until someone tells them specifically, hey, Amy, your business is doing X. You should really be doing Y. Meanwhile, if they had just been willing to take general advice from a business book or a business blog and gone, gee, maybe I should do X, that they would have all the advice and guidance they needed. People want to hear, "Uh, you're unique. Here's how to solve your problem. But in fact, none of us are unique. We all face the same problems. All businesses have roughly the same issues. Same issues with customer support, people telling us the price is too high. It's all the same. And there's a lot of stuff out there. If people are just willing to read it and generalize, go from the general to the specific. But uh, even among my students, I see that people will ask, multiple people will ask the same question throughout the class. And they won't ever look at the other person's answers because they're waiting to hear it to them. And that, I think, is something that cripples people. Um, But there are all kinds of bootstrap communities coming up. I think people are really starting to see this as an alternative. Right. Okay, that's cool. I mean, I, I've been to a couple of the Lean Startup events here in San Francisco, and it it seems like a great group of people, but I haven't quite uh, hooked into it to the lo- at the level where, um, where I feel like I can get support from that community and working on the issues with my startup. So maybe maybe that's an opportunity I haven't developed yet, or... Maybe I need to be looking at slightly different groups. I'm not sure. I don't know. It could but, be either way. I We did it basically ourselves. We did not have a, what I would call a community at all. Building one kind of now. But I think what really... And community can be really important to people, can it? To feel like you're not alone. Oh, yeah. But, this, but at the same time, fundamentally, we're all alone. <laughs> <sighs> This is the Ruby Nihilism podcast. <laughs> You're bringing me down, Amy. Oh, <laughs> you know, the email I sent out to people on my 30 by 100 launch list today, it was like, life is suffering. I really did. I, <laughs> I'm life such is a student intellectual bag. <laughs> okay, life is pain and anyone who tries to tell you different is selling something. Yes. Yes. Something like that. Only. You mock my pain. <laughs> <laughs> Such but, a good movie. <laughs> what movie is that? I never catch the reference. The Princess Bride. Princess Bride. Oh, I really should have known that. Life is pain, Princess. Anyone who tells you anything different is trying to sell you something. What about someone telling you life is pain who's also trying to sell you something? <laughs> <laughs> Raising my hand here, you can't see it, but slowly. <laughs> yeah, yeah, Amy, I'm going to explain to you about podcasts and audio recordings. <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm making air quotes. <laughs> you mean people can't see me? Oh. Okay, so let, let's get back to the topic really quick. So you let's say you have a customer, and you you understand their pain, and you're pretty much ready to... Uh, to, to move ahead and start building the product. Um, how do you know whether or not you actually have enough of the right resources to do it? 
So for example, um, well, let, this is something that I've been talking about for quite a long time, and so I'll just use it as an example. But um, my dad's a dentist, and he has complained bitterly for years about um, about Dentrix. Uh, just doesn't meet his needs, and uh, you know. So you so the thing that's always held me up is the fact that it'll take me quite a long time to build a feature set that it has parity with Dentrix. And, and the you know there are a few other concerns, but how how do you how do you get around that to know that what you're going to build is is something that will actually solve their pain, and that I it, think it'll be big, it'll have enough to where they will want to buy it. I think that I'm going to change the question on you again. Sorry, I have this annoying habit. How rude! Yeah, yeah I know. I'm not really a big hit at parties. <laughs> <laughs> People like me, I swear. So, <laughs> your question is, I kind of want to make better software for dentists. How do I know that I can do that, right? Right. Well, let me ask you this. If the software is so bad, and if everybody hates it, why is there not already somebody else making it better? That's a good question. Yes. Often people hate tools, love to bitch about them all the time, but if you give them something better, they won't actually use it. I think I've seen an inf- almost infinite number of people who are like, I'm going to make property management software better. I'm going to make it easier to schedule swing shifts for restaurants. I'm going to make it easy for local bars and restaurants to fill up seats by texting special offers on slow nights. They all die because people who run salons and bars are running salons and bars and not international corporations because they like playing it small and suffering. <laughs> I've Every worked so many I've of those seen... startups yes, <laughs> for somebody else. It's not even funny. I know. People are like, I see a problem. I can fix that problem. And then they will be grateful and they will give me money and throw me a ticker tape parade because I, the brilliant software developer, has come in to solve their problem. But the reason these people have problems is because they cherish their problems. <laughs> yeah. Or they just don't care enough. I mean, or they there just are. Don't un- care. There are an infinite number of of minor annoyances in the world. I mean, you can always find another one. Even you know, even the the filthy rich have have minor annoyances. And you know, and if it's not enough of an annoyance to to charge enough to support you in in solving it, you know, I I've, I've been part of a, a start myself that that everybody thought the you know the idea was great and thought it was a terrific service, but it was a nice to have. Yeah. You know, it wasn't, it wasn't a must-have. That could so, be, I mean, that can be, like, whether or not you're selling a property properly. Like, people need to be kind of inflamed. Sometimes they have minor problems, but when you echo the problems back to them in a way that they identify with, it starts them uh, on the path to seeing that it actually is not that minor of a problem. But sometimes it can just be because people don't care enough to change, like you said. So, a- Amy, what you said a, f- a few moments ago, I think, is... Um, is pretty spot on, but uh, I, I wanted to, to try it again um, with with um, a little less ire dripping from it. <laughs> you know, you were talking about how, how people don't want to give up their problems because they cherish them, like they're atta- they're attached to their problems, and that I I know that it, it's pretty easy to to. Uh, look at that and go like, ha, 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 you know, how silly of you to cherish your problems. But I, I think for a lot of people, it, it's, you know, we can laugh at them, but but we're all like that. And we all are, you know, dealing with our lives and our business and whatever at the level that we know, 
Like, what are the problems we know how to solve? Oh, I absolutely and, agree. Yeah. You misinterpreted my ire. The dripping ire <laughs> is for the people who are so arrogant to think that they'll solve these problems and that those people will love them for it. Oh, uh, but they will. I know but they, they will. won't. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, and no, the, no. Other, have, the other take on it to, to add a whole lot more ire to it um, is one quote that I still remember when, when Zed Shaw uh, flamed out and left the, the Rails community forever because it was a ghetto. One of the things that he said was, there's no work for a smart man in a, in a town full of stupid. And <laughs> I remember reading that and thinking, that smart man must be a lousy salesman. Um, <laughs> and I think the cherishing our problems is true, but Amy, you teach an entire course based on how to get around that. So do you, do you start selling dumb or do you sell smart better? To my students or to have them sell to their customers? It, which, it, well, either, either. See, what I tell my students is to look out for this set of like 15 or 16 failure archetypes. And one of them is called a cure for religion or kosher ham. There's two different ones. They're related. The cure for religion is trying to solve a problem where the people actually really believe in their problem. For example, how many times have you looked at someone and it's an office somewhere doing everything out of Excel and you're like, oh, I could make that so much better. And then you maybe present them with a solution. They're like, oh, I love Excel. (laughs) They like it. They like it. It's not a problem to them. They like it, even though you see it as a problem. So that's a cure for religion. Kosher ham is when you try to sell something to an audience where it fundamentally disagrees with their values. Um, and so that is a case of things like trying to solve swing shift scheduling or whatever. So I tell my students, when you find, you, you have to be careful which problems you attack. And you need to keep these types of product failure archetypes in mind. And so not to try to sell them in the first place. Because there are different kinds of failures that you can recover from. But if your product is wrong in its conception, if you pick the completely wrong audience, those you can almost never actually fix. If you're, um, you may have to start over, and that's not good. So it's like more like aim your failure towards stuff you can grow from and build on, even if it's a, you know, a kind of a flop right away. Right. Uh, so I would not try to sell that kind of tool to somebody. So I don't... Um, when it comes to me selling my course, I obviously have to lure people in who are a little bit earlier in this uh, process. But I wouldn't call it selling dumb. It's more like seducing them by degrees. It's like right. I seduce them with something they understand, and then I go, but that's not actually how it works. Mm-hmm. So is one of your failure architects, because uh, the you know, failure architect, that could be my next title. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, is, so, Only so if you go to, to a startup. Yeah, so the so Dentrix is a local company here in Utah that makes dent, dentist software, and it's insanely complicated, and it's it's hugely vendor lock in, um, and I would not ever compete with them um, for a different reason. And I'm curious. This is touching back on Princess Bride again, but is one of your 15 failure archetypes uh, getting involved in a land war in Asia? It isn't. It isn't. But you, you know what I mean by that, though, right? It's like I completely taking on, do. Okay, yeah. Although, that's not a Princess Bride reference, is it? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Is it? And only slightly less well-known. Is going in against a Sicilian when death is on the line! <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> is that um, one of your failure archetypes? <laughs> no, it should be. It should going be. up against someone who's not afraid to die. <laughs> yeah. um, that's, 
I really I ought to add that. It should be 16 failure archetypes. One of them, though, is Mount Everest, which is a product that you can never finish. Mm-hmm. So I feel like the, competing, against, competing against Dentrix is probably also a Mount Everest, even yeah. ignoring, or um, it's you can't scratch. Like, if you can't get to the people you, can, you need to sell to, or if the people who are being pained by the problem aren't the people who can make the purchasing decisions, that's kind of a way to fail. But to go back to your specific example, if you really, really did want to compete against Dentrix and you wanted to solve that pain that people suffer from, you need to start really small. Start writing a blog about how to cope with Dentrix, you know, uh, how to improve your practice without, you know, throwing away your software or, you know, to do things better uh, without radically changing. Wow. Go fifth So you, you lure them in. You build your audience and with little investment. And no software you have to throw away and give up on and, you know, cry yourself to sleep yeah, well, <laughs> when you and, can't and, tell it. And, that's, and that's, that's great because you're attacking two sides of the problem at once. You're both building your audience and doing your customer research at the same time. Bingo. Yep. You're building a honey trap. <laughs> I really like that. I really like that idea. But that approach doesn't, doesn't have a working product at the end of two weeks. Well... <laughs> <laughs> Yes, if it's an agile honey trap. <laughs> uh, hopefully the sarcasm was obvious. <laughs> you can't do sarcasm in a podcast. Oh, right. I so, how podcast. What is the sarcasm hand gesture? <laughs> it, it looks like this. I'm making it right now. Jeez. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so, so my next question is, it sounds like you're saying that uh, if you are going to build a product, and this, I've heard this before and it kind of applies to any product, is that you need to start selling it beforehand. Um, you know, at least finding customers, but, you know, really just talking to people about what it is and building that honey trap. And, and what's, what's the best approach to that? Does it depend on your customer? To a small degree, yes. So you need to make sure that you pick the right kind of customer because if you can't find them online and study them to learn from them, you also can't find them online to market to them. So one of the other things I teach in my class is if you can't find them hanging out together online in sufficient quantities, you can't sell to them because you can't learn from them adequately. There won't be enough research material for you. And then when you do start creating your content marketing and you want to talk to people if you can't find them, you can't sell them. You can't afford to pay for billboards or sponsor user groups right away. No way. You need to work on a pragmatic way to market, and that is to build a blog, create, do a webinar, you write some blog posts, create some cheat sheets, free ebooks, whatever will draw them in. And you have to have a distribution mechanism for that. It has to be shareable. And things will get shared if the people don't talk to each other. So it's kind of a combination of factors it, that lead to is there a place in there also for, for what you enjoy doing? I mean, like, you know, I, I, um, I, I sell books and, and, and pairing appointments these days, and that works because I, I have people that read my blog, uh, among other things. And I have people that read my blog because I really enjoy writing. Right. Um, and um, other people, you know, they enjoy other things. You know, Gary Vaynerchuk, he likes, he likes making videos. Um, Totally. You know, so so is that part of your consideration as well? Like what you enjoy um, doing and will will actually continue doing for a extended period of time? Are are you crazy? They call it work because it's not fun. <laughs> <laughs> Am I doing this all wrong? <laughs> yes. Uh, if you want, to should run a life business, be pain? 
Life shouldn't be pain. It just happens to be pain. (laughs) Uh, You should definitely choose things which match your inclinations, but definitely what, I mean, Josh is being silly, but if you want to run a business, there's going to be stuff that you're going to hate. I'm enjoying talking to you guys right now, but after we get off this, I have to talk to my bookkeeper. I don't want to do that, (laughs) Um, (laughs) but I have to, you know, and you have to market until the point where you can hire somebody else to market for you. And so if it, if it's a question of whether you should do podcasts, videos, um, screencasts, you know, live meetups or on the internet, you know, live as in, you know, as it happens, not necessarily in the meet space, you know, you pick the things that work for you and that work for your audience. If your audience hates videos, but you love videos, you might have picked the wrong audience. You have to find this, this, the pegs that match your holes. I didn't just say that. <laughs> Was that not dirty to anybody else? It's just, it's just me. You know, it's, it's one of those times when you, if you go back and say that sounds way dirtier than it actually is, it makes yeah. it dirtier than it actually sounded. <laughs> which is awesome. She said. <laughs> I spent enough time around Dave to where no, it didn't. Okay. <laughs> the, the, so just by contrast, the thought that I had in my head about bookkeeping as you were saying it was, this is uh, Dave's business tips for anybody who wants it. Uh, I hate bookkeeping as well, and I couldn't convince my bookkeeper to sleep with me, so I convinced the woman I sleep with to become my bookkeeper. <laughs> I was going to say, I know your bookkeeper. Yep. D- David, what does your wife think about this? Um, so, Amy, about the... <laughs> <laughs> she doesn't listen to the podcast. <laughs> but does she do your bookkeeping? Just Actually, check. yes. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I, my wife is a saint. I I married awesome. well. I married well. I can't even imagine trying to get Thomas to do our bookkeeping. It would not work. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, to continue the marketing thread, I wanted to say something. I just blogged about this. Um, it's really important not to talk about what your product is. Nobody cares. Talk about what the customer feels, wants, dreams of, etc. That's what they care about. Everybody is completely self-absorbed and the best way to win somebody's heart is to uh talk to them about them just imagine you're don draper Who's this is don me draper? not getting pop culture references <laughs> no i i didn't i didn't follow that one either oh wow I mean, none of you none of you watch mad men i know of it i know who don draper is but i don't watch it no okay well then i will just leave that one isn't he kind of evil are you calling <laughs> evil no, 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 no. He's he. Well, he's he's an ad man, and uh, and he's sort of noted for his ability to sort of get into his get into the customer's mind, and uh, you know, talk about products from the point of view of what the the customer what the customer is thinking rather than what the product is. So, well, like the the, the classic example is is he's he's uh, Kodak has come to him with their new their new uh, well they haven't called it that this yet their new carousel. A slide changer, you know, slide projector. Um, only they call it like the wheel or something, and they they're very keen on on the ad agency selling the fact that they put tons of research and development into this new, into this wheel, and they practically reinvented the wheel. Um, and <laughs> no pun uh, intended, right? Uh, well, I think pun very intended, but but uh, <coughs> but but Don completely like ignores that and, and comes up with a, a campaign that is based on uh, nostalgia rather than than the future and and talks about the you know the, the nostalgia that's reflected in the slides that people actually you know want to you know 
project on their walls rather than the, the device itself. I think I saw that when it first, a video clip of that when it first came out and thought, yeah, yeah, yeah the, the clip yeah. went around a lot. It's brilliant. I wholly agree with that. Now, if Kodak also started and built that because of what their, uh, their customers wanted, then you would have the full circle or the full wheel. The full carousel. The carousel will have come full circle. <laughs> Jeez. So. <laughs> so that makes complete sense. I wholly approve of, of that being Don Draper-like then. Amy, I'm going to take your class and make a million bucks and buy Chuck a mute button. <laughs> I hit my damn mute button. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to have to look at this afterward. <laughs> That'll be a very touching success story. Yes. There's a mark yes. for a better button. <laughs> well, it, it must not be hooked in right. I, I got a new mixer and I replugged everything, so I must not have plugged it right. Actually, uh, one of my picks is uh, for today is is actually a mute button, and uh, I guess I should talk not about the product but about the benefits, right? Have you ever wished you could make David Brady shut up? <laughs> well, David <laughs> Brady can't. <laughs> so, so, so this is the mute button that works for the other person's microphone. <laughs> so it's well, it's a sonic screwdriver. <laughs> Somebody's going to come oh, up see, with a terrible name get, for it. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. <laughs> you know, nerds. right myself included by the by see i would say you shouldn't start with the benefits you should start with the pain have you ever been really embarrassed by forgetting to use your mute button only you actually pressed it but it didn't work (laughs) okay okay get the point (laughs) (laughs) now how much would he pay (laughs) two (laughs) dollars one million we can solve the problem you can fund the mute button Kickstarter. Oh, yeah. There we go. Okay, yeah. Uh, a quick take. Kickstarter. Good idea, bad idea? Me? Yeah. <laughs> uh, I think it would have been a better idea if when they had approached me to design it that I had not told them a really high price and done it for them. <laughs> kick myself a little bit for that. But I don't kickstart myself a little bit for that. I think that in the right hands, it can be really amazing. And then it's also, on the flip side, sponsoring a lot of things which um, are vaporware and will never get built because these people don't know what it's like to get lots of money up up front. Getting a lot of money up front can be really crippling because then you have all this anxiety and then you end up maybe doing nothing. So um, you don't have a sufficient amount of desperation to drive you. Yes. Or yes. And it it gets weird. The psychology around money can be very strange. Uh, But I think that for some projects it's really amazing. Wonderful. And others, it's probably just enabling a kind of personal problem. Mm-hmm. Thomas recently funded the LiFX light bulb thing, which I don't think is ever going to get produced, mm. personally. What, what is this? It's allegedly this new wave light bulb, which has colored LEDs in it. Um, so it's an LED light bulb. It's supposed to retail for like 49 bucks. Uh, go into any you know, regular light socket with... The special sauce is that it creates a local mesh network on Wi-Fi and connects to your actual Wi-Fi internet service. So you should be able to control it completely from your iPhone, kind of like the Nest. So you should be able to set it to create mood lighting according to the beat in the music that you're playing or like control all the bulbs at once, turn them on in groups or all together in your house. It's really cool looking. But 
I don't think that there's any way that they could get it produced for the money that they're raising. And um, it seems like all these high-tech products that go on Kickstarter miss their shipping deadlines or never get shipped, all sorts of problems. So I'm highly skeptical about it. Right. Uh, yeah. It, well, th- there's, you know, using Kickstarter to fund your business and then there's using Kickstarter to fund um, one-off product projects. Right. And, and th- those seem like they... They're they're doing pretty well in a lot of cases. I, I'm really excited that um, the the first project that I funded there, the SkyCube satellite, got funded, and they're you know working like mad to build the satellite to launch next year. So that's I I got my fingers crossed there. <laughs> but um, but yeah, I mean we haven't seen if like the whole Kickstarter model for a business is workable. The, you know the only one that I know of that's ha- that got funded and has been around for a while is diaspora and you know they they've now pivoted and they're doing all sorts of other stuff so uh oh have they i haven't i haven't been watching but i oh, oh, that, I'm curious so, so I, I don't want to freak you out but uh diaspora uh was in the most recent y combinator class really yeah really <laughs> yeah yeah they're they're now like maker dot uh, io m-a-k-r so huh. Yeah, I'll have to check it they, out. Well, they, they discovered that people don't care to pay for uh, privacy or ownership of their content. Uh, not surprised. Yeah. <laughs> Solution in search of a problem. Uh, I was afraid. I'm surprised it's still around at all, though. But I'm a cynical, cynical person. <laughs> well, yeah. you know, they have a dedicated team, and they actually have a have a community who's interested in them. They just don't have customers to pay them. I'm so nodding. Startups are like terrorist organizations. Once the primary goal has been achieved or abandoned, the organization doesn't disband. Yeah. Okay. That's like any organization. Well, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, basically. Or committee. Yeah. All right. Well, nope. we've we've gone way over our hour. <laughs> oh, we have. No, actually, we've done exactly an hour. We just don't have time for picks now. <laughs> yeah. That's okay. I only have five. Okay. <laughs> But I prepared so, in advance. <laughs> okay, so let's do picks. There are always time for picks. All right. Well, Josh, why don't you start us off with picks? Uh, because I don't have any, dude. <laughs> I had a conference last <laughs> week. <laughs> I actually have massage I, therapy. Yeah, yeah. Well, I already picked that. Okay. <laughs> I picked that a long time ago. Oh, yeah. uh, I'm, I'm going to pick um, voter registration. So I know we have an international audience and people in countries outside of the United States of America look at our politics mainly as a source of um, either terror or entertainment. Uh, but um, the, I, I want to say if you are a U.S. citizen, uh, I encourage you to vote no matter what your persuasion. Um, and uh, you, to vote, you need to be registered. Um, and in some cases, have an ID. Uh, but uh, there are there are plenty of uh, places to go register to vote, including online. So um, there's uh, the the one that I know I know of that is uh, nonpartisan is uh, there's a site for Rock the Vote that I helped build a couple years ago, where you can go fill out your stuff online and then download a PDF that you sign and mail in. So, and it just helps you with that. And I know that there's plenty of other places that are building uh, things like that too, but I wanted to pick one that didn't have a particular political affiliation. And then my other pick was, oh wait, sorry, were you going to say something, Avdi? Vote Cthulhu 2012. Yeah, why why choose the lesser evil? That's right. (laughs) (laughs) 
right? Wow. And and then I would have uh, I would I really wanted to pick uh, Sandy Metz's book. Uh, uh, practical object oriented design in Ruby, but uh, Katrina picked it the other week, so all I can do is um, second her pick. Didn't I pick it too? Like pr- before then? <laughs> it's good. well, okay. So why don't we just? It's pick your it turn to pick week? it. <laughs> yes, it's my turn. To pick <laughs> it. <laughs> it's uh, so okay. But I'm done with my picks. All right, Avdi, what are your picks? All right, I have to start out with an anti with a a, a pick withdrawal. Um, a while back, I picked Parallels Workstation. Um, and I recently had a terrible, terrible support um, experience with them. Basically, they failed to keep up um, with current. I, I upgraded along with the rest of the the Unix Linux universe to twelve point Ubuntu twelve point oh four, which is the the current long term release version of the most popular desktop Linux distribution out there. And Parallels completely broke and basically blamed me for keeping my system up to date, um, even though it's like almost six months after that system was released. So um, just just a terrible, terrible experience. I'm trying to get my money back from them, and I'm never, probably never going to buy a product from them again. A couple of travel picks. Uh, I recently stayed at my first Airbnb. Uh, it was a very good experience, and uh, it was... So I'm a, a total travel cheapskate, and uh, it was a way to stay in, in downtown San Francisco for under $100 a night, uh, thank you very much, Josh, for pointing me to that listing. Uh, and uh, yeah, so if you're if you're traveling on a budget, Airbnb can be a great option. Um, related to that, uh, most in most cities, it, it if you're trying to get from the to or from the airport to to or from downtown, you know, a, a taxi or even like Uber or something like that is going to cost like fifty, sixty dollars. Um, you can usually in most cities, you can usually get a super shuttle for like under twenty bucks. And as long as you don't mind, travel, you know, getting in a in a van with a few other people, uh, you just you know you, you can go online, you schedule when you want to be picked up, and uh, and I've it's it's always worked really well for me. It's super cheap. Uh, programmer related, there is a great Kent Beck article recently. Uh, it's called "Naming from the Outside In," I think, and uh, it's just really enjoyable. It's about naming things and and how you go about figuring out what to name things, what to name variables and classes and stuff. Um, and one last pick, uh, I, I just came back from the Golden Gate Ruby conference and the videos are already going up on Confreaks and one of my favorites has gone up already. It's called Linguistic Potluck Crowdsourcing Localization in Rails by Heather Rivers. And it's just a surprisingly, for the subject matter, it is a surprisingly enjoyable and illuminating talk and, um, about a, a, a topic that I had thought of as, as pretty boring. So I'm done. Awesome. David, what I, do you... I, oh, I, go ahead. I, I, I just have a little follow-up pick. I want to pick Avdi's Dancing. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. That, 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 that man knows how to open up a dance floor. We did, uh, we did promise that we would talk about Avdi's Dancing, so... Is this yeah, going not on good right for now? much else. I understand that when people do a podcast, you can't see what's going on. Is he, is he dancing now? No, I'm missing something. <laughs> please, did Avdi, please. Did you forget that joke from earlier? Yeah. <laughs> All right, over to me? Yes. All right, so uh, just real quick, haha, I always say that, but this time for real. Um, so I dropped and broke my podcasting microphone last week, and um, I ha- now have, a, have spent a week with the uh, Blue Yeti uh, USB microphone. Um, love it. It's great. You can set it to directional. You can set it to omnidirectional. It's got this 
red mute light on the front, uh, a mute button that you can push on it, and when you push it and you're muted, it flashes, and I thought that would bug the snot out of me. And it actually turns out that it's, it's incredibly useful to have that little visual indicator that that's going on there. And that leads me to my second pick, which is shush.app. If you're on a Mac and you've got uh, a microphone woes, as we often do, um, sh- there's two apps in the App Store right now uh, that will give you push-to-talk on your keyboard to mute and unmute your microphone. And push-to-talk is the cheaper of the two, but you actually have to bind a key combo like Shift-M or, you know, you know con- you know, command back deck or whatever. Um, shush actually let you lets you bind the function key or just the shift key to uh, unmute your microphone. And um, I've been using it all through this episode, so every time I need to cough or whatever, I just let go of the keyboard and I'm fine. And I really like uh, just the flexibility of it. And what blows me away is that it's integrated with the Blue Yeti mic so that uh, I push down on the function key and the little red light on the mic stops uh, blinking so that I know that the mic is hot. So um, I had some other picks, but I promised I was going to keep it short, and I'm going to keep my promise today. So them's my picks. All right. Well, I'll go ahead and go next. Um, My first pick, I'm not sure why this game has been so addicting for me, but uh, I picked up Civilization Four from the App Store, and I've I've really been uh, enjoying it. I've been playing it pretty much non-stop when I'm not working. <laughs> and so, um, anyway, it's, it's, it's kind of fun. It's, it's a turn-based, um, world conquest kind of game. I, I don't know the best way to describe it. I, I, I think that's as close as you can get without going into too much depth, but it's a fun game and, and I've been enjoying it. I don't remember. I think it was like 10 or 20 bucks in the app store or something. And then, um, another pick, um, is the, the guys that I've been working with, um, we were playing with... What was it, Dave? It was something.fm? The Turntable.fm. Turntable.fm. And um, one of the guys played some music by Joe Satriani. Mm-hmm. And uh, I really liked it. And so I went and bought one of the albums off of iTunes. And I have to say, it's it's pretty it, it's pretty good music. I really enjoy it. Just, just the guitar and stuff that, that's in it and things like that. So... Um, my other pick is Joe Satriani, and uh, I'll put links to those in the show notes as well. Um, Amy, what are your picks? My picks are, first, the TV show BBC Mastercrafts. If you are outside the U.S., there's pretty much only one way to get it, and you know what I mean. But it's totally worth it. I wrote that epic blog post all about it. Um, I've watched it twice now. It is basically a series. It's a reality TV show, like audition series, kind of like American Idol, but with hand-weaving and blacksmithing which makes it awesome. Oh, no Simon Cowell. It's fantastic. I love it. I think that most of the best inspirations for business and startups in life are actually not about business and startups. This is one of them. I also really love my Levenger Circa notebook. And I've got the link ready for that because it's not spellable. Uh, It is a notebook that is like the hacker's ideal paper notebook. It is not held together by rings or uh, spirals, but by disks, which are independently positionable. So if you, for example, uh, want a larger notebook, you can get more disks and configure any size you want. And you, uh, paper is held on not by complete loops, but sort of D-shaped or mushroom-shaped holes punched in it so it can slide in and out. You don't have to open anything. You can rip a piece of paper out like this. And then just reposition it anywhere in the notebook. 
no snapping, no pinching your fingers. I love it. You can make your own paper, any kind of planner you want. You can put any paper you want in it with a punch. I spent a couple hundred bucks on way too many accessories, but you can get set up for as low as $12, and it's just fantastic. I work a lot on paper, but the overhead of working with paper has always been so high that I would give up. And then I just closed the page I had open on my front picks. <laughs> Oops, there it is. Um, my other pick would be the book Breakthrough Advertising by Eugene Schwartz. It's about 100 bucks, but it is the best book on marketing that I have ever read in my life. It helped inspire me to rearrange my class to start focusing on the customer first. And it's a little dated, but it really deserves to be a classic. Almost nobody knows about Eugene Schwartz. He's not one of the top copywriters people reference. But this book is a goldmine. I recommend everybody read it, whether or not you run a business, because even if you're a consultant or an employee, it will tell you how to better present yourself, how to serve, identify and serve needs in a way that lets you charge more and also be more effective. Nice. And that's it for me. All right. The, the sound clip of you ripping that page out sold, just sold 49 notebooks. <laughs> that's awesome. Get the punch. I hear that the Staples M series is interchangeable and that the punch may or may not be cheaper. But the punch means that I can just doodle on any random scrap of paper around and then punch it and then put it wherever I want. It's awesome. Cool. Let, let me do it again. Paper form. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I can't hear me putting it back in. You know, a little don't, don't need to. <laughs> it's so easy. <laughs> awesome. All right. Well, I think that's everything for our show. Um, we are going to be putting up some information uh, requesting that uh, people who are new to Ruby um, contact us. We'll put the uh, information up on the um, up on the web page, and uh, we're we're looking for people to come and talk to us about what it's like to be new to Ruby. So um, look for that page to go up pretty soon here. And uh, other than that, if there's nothing else, we'll we'll wrap up and we'll catch y'all next week. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye.